Well, even the most unchurched and casual visitor to the, our city who might be walking on King Street past this magnificent structure this morning would immediately know what its function is. And a quick and stop inside would confirm that, of course, this is a church. And indeed, it is one that is very well appointed for Christian worship. The irony, however, is that Jesus' own disciples wouldn't recognize the architecture of this place as Christian at all. Nor would any of his followers for the next 12 generations or so. If any of them were to walk into this building this morning, they might perhaps have thought that it was a Greek or a Roman meeting hall, possibly a temple, but certainly not a place for communion with the humble carpenter from Nazareth. And why would that have been? Well, because owing to the persecution of the early church, those very first Christians for the first 300 years or so, they only worshipped in the homes of the most affluent members of the new Jesus movement. So just picture that scene. At those Sunday morning gatherings, they would have shared a sacred meal of bread and wine together, but according to the custom of the day, not sitting, standing, and kneeling like we do, but reclining around a horseshoe-shaped table. And that's why the Gospels tell us, for example, that at the Last Supper, the beloved disciple leaned across Jesus' breast. That's very easy to do when you're lying next to one another. Now, all that sounds very cozy, and it would certainly make the sign of peace a lot more interesting today, were we still to do it. But it masks the fact that those well-heeled men and women who hosted those religious get-togethers in their homes had themselves been immersed in the etiquette of Rome and Athens. They were very, very well-versed about who should have a place of honor at the table and who simply shouldn't. And despite Jesus' words, and we heard him comment about this very thing only two weeks ago, a careful reading of the New Testament suggests that those first Christians, they actually struggled to allow the poor, the outcast, the criminal, and those who were not part of their social class to have a place at the table with them. Now that background is really important to understand because it provides the context for Luke's recounting of Jesus' two very familiar parables this morning, the lost sheep and the lost coin, since his message isn't really directed against the Pharisees so much as it is directed at us, who are called to form an inclusive community in the name of Jesus Christ. But we do absolutely have to start with the Pharisees and their complaint, to be sure. They were offended, we are told, because Jesus not only ate with undesirables, but he eagerly welcomed them into his company. Now, St. Luke breaks down the offensive dinner guests into two distinct groups. First, you have the tax collectors, who defrauded the Jewish people of their hard-earned cash on behalf of a foreign government. Now, they represent all of us who, by what we have done and what we have left undone, 
have offended God and his law. And then there is the second group, the the more generic group labeled sinners. Now, as we all know, Scripture was very clear about sinners. They're supposed to be avoided. The very first words of Psalm 1 say it perfectly. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor sit in the company of sinners. Now, by Jesus' day, the term sinners had become a a catch-all of sorts for lepers, the blind, the poor, the sick, the lame, the women whom society had forced to sell their bodies in order to survive. In short, sinners were all of those whom the upstanding citizens of Israel believed were cursed by God, either for their own offenses or for the transgressions of their ancestors. But Jesus, as we know, simply did not believe that at all. He understood that these people were generally victims of circumstance, and there was absolutely no way he was going to add to the burden that they already carried by shunning them and reinforcing the idea that they were pariahs, unfit for respectable society. The point is, Jesus made room for both groups, tax collectors and sinners. And among those first Christians who would have heard this story told to them in those little house churches so very long ago, there would have been some who knew that they had been the outcasts that were embraced by Jesus, but there also would have been others lying around those tables, the more respectable members of the community, who still wondered, wouldn't it be best for all concerned if the marginalized just remain marginalized? That they knew their place, perhaps standing at the door, but did they really have a place at the table? Even better yet, maybe they could just listen outside. Well, as Jesus tells his two stories, it's very clear that some important lessons are to be learned, not only about the nature of God, but also about what it means to be the church. And the first of those lessons is this, that in the kingdom of God, no one is a write-off. To drive that point home, Jesus even risks making the shepherd in his story look pretty foolish when you think about it, because It is an imprudent shepherd indeed who leaves the 99 vulnerable sheep unattended in the perils of the wilderness just to look for the one who has quite irresponsibly wandered off. Now, most of us would say, well, that's a shame, but the stupid thing made its choice, as many of us have probably said about friends and family members who have become alcoholics or drug addicts or whose behavior has left them permanently scarred or damaged. Had the shepherd made sure that the 99 were safely locked up in their pens and then traipsed off across the hillsides in pursuit, his first listeners might have concurred that the shepherd had done the right thing. But that is not the way Jesus chose to tell his story. His shepherd shocks them. His shepherd's unwise arguably unreasonable behavior was intended to force them to consider the fact that God doesn't give up on any of his children. None of us who draws breath is beyond his care. For God, we are all so much more 
than the sum total of the bad choices that we have made in life. And so this divine shepherd risks everything to bring us back when we wander away. Because we have all been that lost sheep at one time or another in our lives, we as the church hold this parable up as a model for everything that we do because we know that there are simply no write-offs among God's children. Now the parable of the shepherd really sets the stage for the parable of the lost coin because if that first story tells us what we are not, then the second one insists on what we actually are of immeasurable value in the sight of Almighty God. Now to many of those earliest Christians lying around on their couches, hearing this story for the very first time, the loss of one small coin wasn't going to break them. Indeed, the exaggerated way in which the woman in the parable deals with both its loss and its recovery would probably have baffled many of them. They would have scratched their heads and said, didn't the party that she threw for her friends and neighbors actually cost more than the value of the coin that she lost in the first place? And they'd be right. But that was Jesus' point, wasn't it? The face value of this coin was immaterial to the woman. All that mattered was that it was precious to her. And the joy that she felt and the celebration that followed when it was found was perfectly commensurate with her relief at its restoration. And so it is with our God. The value that God places on us, even when we get lost along the way, never, ever alters. We remain of infinite value in his sight and worthy to be found by him over and over and over again. And whatever the sliding scale of value that this world may place on us, whatever our condition, whatever our economic class, whatever our status, positive, negative, alien, refugee, junkie, this woman expresses through her deeds what God has told us through the prophet Isaiah, you are precious in my sight, and you are mine. The two parables that we have just heard are in fact a prelude to the third, which follows, the prodigal son, that great story of being lost and found and then being welcomed home again. The church, in its wisdom, saves that story for another day. But both of our parables this morning when taken together, focus our attention on God's attitude towards us. In their simplicity and in their hidden complexity, these parables tell us that our God is patient, full of mercy, and lavish in his kindness. There are no lengths to which God will not go to get us back that our God is relentless in pursuing us and rejoices when we are restored to his loving embrace after getting lost, no matter how foolishly we may have wandered off or how far or even how long we've been away. Our God never, ever gives up on us. And that was the lesson St. Luke recorded for our earliest Christian ancestors who, as the Acts of the Apostles describes, frequently did struggle to decide 
who should have a place at the table and who should just be shown the door. The answer, as these two parables show us, was a far more inclusive one than many of them could ever have imagined. And by the grace of God, we now continue the work of that kind shepherd and that industrious woman here in this holy place, seeking out those who are lost and affirming the priceless value of everyone who enters our doors. In a particular way, for 25 years now, the staff and volunteers of the Cathedral's Tuesday drop-in have been at the forefront of making those who wander our often dangerous and uncaring streets know with absolute certainty that they are not write-offs, that they are infinitely precious in the sight of Almighty God. Here, the hopeless are given hope and the despairing are given strength. Those who live with shame find healing and all receive a warm welcome just like the one that Jesus extended to those that his society preferred to keep at a distance so long ago. To the staff and the volunteers who keep the Tuesday drop in a place of dignity where we, we offer our greatest thanks and our warmest support. What a model of Christian hospitality they are for all of us, confirming that at the very, very heart of our faith is the belief that there is nothing and no one lost that cannot be found. Amen.